All right, so I'll open us up in a word of prayer, and then we're going to read this passage, and we're going to get started on it. So let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for everything that you have done for us. We ask now that as we read your word that you would, um, that you would speak to us, that you would open up our minds, let us be able to hear you and your message, let it, let it uh, penetrate into different parts of our lives, let us uh, constantly be reminded of the things that we need to be w- working on, and, and let us see how these passages can, can directly impact these things where we are working on in our lives, Lord. Make us more like you every time we come together, every time we think about you, every time we, we learn about you in fellowship together. Uh, form us more in unity and in your spirit, God. I ask that you would give us some, uh, some context, some first century eyes, and let us look at this passage and see what it meant for the, for the author, the intent that they had in writing it, and let us somehow apply it into this 21st century world and um, do something really great with us this morning, God. Really make us and form us in your image. We thank you for everything you've done for us. Pray all of this in your name. Amen. All right. All right. Okay. So today... We're going to cover verses 4 through 7, and I'm stopping, I'm stopping right there because the next passage, um, I have a hard time with the chapter break at verse, uh, at verse 13, and I'm not sure that it should be there, and so we're going to, those were added in much later, like, like 5th century, so we're going we're gonna to take the next passage with the, with the next chapter. So today, there's plenty of stuff here, um, there's a lot of words that are used that are really interesting that he used them, and uh, we're going to look at all that. So... Let's read this together. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love, do, love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So this is the passage we're working with today. It's just a, a rapid-fire succession of lots of things that Paul says that this is about. Um, Last week we talked a little bit about, about the good deeds that he mentioned beforehand um, at the beginning of the chapter. Paul starts off this whole conversation really at the end of, verse t- of chapter 12, the very last verse. Halfway through the last verse he says, and I will show you a better way. There's a better way to live. Um, better than good deeds, better than focusing on all these spiritual gifts, there's a much, much better way. And that way is love. Um, and he's basically saying that good deeds don't free us from sin. Good deeds don't cleanse, us, cleanse our lives of this sin. Um, lots of sins exist that thrive when we are doing good deeds and when we're exercising the spiritual gifts. Things like pride, things like selfishness, a lack of unity. Lots of sins can take root when you are being um, just a very morally upright person, when you're being a very spiritually upright person. Um, and so, obviously, if sins can thrive in these good deeds, then good deeds are not the answer. And Paul is arguing this whole chapter that it's love. Um, we've seen that love is the better way. If we aim for love, we end up with good deeds as well as a transformed life. Um, and so the question that we have is, what is love? <clears throat> and this is what Paul really sets out to do. Now, oftentimes, you're going to hear people say uh, something like, God is love. And, and a lot of times, um, when I'm out talking to people, they find out I'm a pastor, and the first thing they want to do is talk about God and and that's great. That's fine. It's kind of what I do. Um, and so we talk about, uh, you know, I kind of ask them, especially when I meet, uh, for, it usually goes the same way. No matter if you meet atheists or if you meet uh, just people who believe there is a God, but they're not Christians. Um, I, I start off by asking, if, you do, if they don't believe in a God, I say, well, who, what God do you not believe in? Describe the God you don't believe in. And they say, well, this God, this blah, blah, blah. And they just describe this God. And typically, I, I end up saying, I don't really believe in that God either. So... There you go. Um, the God I believe in is the God of the Scriptures. That's nothing like what you just described. Um, and, and a lot of times, if they, if, they, if they do believe there's a God, but they're not Christians, I'll ask them, well, who is God? Well, God is love, and, and they'll say, they always start off with God is love, 
um, a very loving God. Uh, he would never punish anyone. He would never confront or judge anyone. He would, he's, he's very tolerant. He doesn't disagree with people. Um, he would never just kick them out of his presence like that. Uh, he's, he's very tolerant of every view, even about himself. Um, and he would, you know, everyone's right, and God sees that. And then and they'd say, and, and basically, uh, God would tell everyone that their interpretations of him are just as valid as everyone else's. And, and see, most of the time, what we're doing is we're defining love and then we use that to say, and God is that. So if you, if you ever hear someone say, God is love, you can ask them, well, define love. And typically, the, the, the definition they're giving of love is not the definition the scriptures give of love. They're just giving their description of lo- lo- what love is. Um, and then they're saying, and God is that. So oftentimes, God ends up looking exactly like them. God ends up believing in everything that they believe. And it's no surprise that, that, this, that, that this is so prevalent in today's society. Um, most of the time we're defining love and we're attributing it to God. And see, we form an idea of what love is based on what we would like others to do. And then we say, and that's what God is. So we're making God in our own image. And we're saying that God is ourselves, basically. Um, or at least he's just like us. Um, and if we really want to know what, what love is, first what we need to do is we need to look to God and see what God is and define love by what we see God as, all right? Um, There is no point in defining God as love when you have your own personal definition of love. If you want to know what love is, you look to God, all right? Oftentimes, we do this backwards, and when scriptures say God is love, then it's saying if we want to know what love is, we look to God. What it's not saying is if we want to know what God is like, we look to love, all right? Those are two completely different things, and it doesn't make any sense um, to define God as your view of love, all right? So, uh, because our, oftentimes our human emotion of love has been tainted and ruined by our own nature, human nature of sin. Um, so the first thing Paul wants to do is be very detailed about how love relates to people. You'll notice every one of these definitions that Paul gives, patient, kind, does not envy or boast, it's not rude, it's not arrogance, uh, doesn't insist on its own way, every one of these things are relational things. It always has to do with the relationship of one person to another, Always. Um, and this is, it works, if, um, sorry, um, if the spiritual gifts, basically, the whole point of the spiritual gifts is to bring us together. And if the spiritual gifts are meant to bring us together, and love is the basis for all of these things, then it's obvious that Paul would give us the definitions um, rooted in how a loving person treats another person and how love brings us together. So that is the whole point of all of this. Now, first off, you have to ask sort of, why did Paul do this in the first place? Why did, was Paul just sitting around one day and someone said, hey Paul, what's love? And, well, love is patient, it's kind, it's, and he's just, this isn't at all what happened. Paul's not just pulling these things, he's not just shooting from the hip and describing what love is, he's not just pulling these, these things out of the air. There's a reason he mentioned every single one of these things that he mentioned. And um, the, the reason he did this is because it goes perfectly with everything he has already described in the text. Um, First off, the Corinthians were very, very gifted. They were brilliant. They were savvy. They were um, living in a city that was on the cutting edge. It was the New York City of its day. It was the very cutting edge of society at the time. It was, <clears throat> it was a, a very uh, rich society. It was a very art-filled society. Um, lots of people who were very... Um, that affected a lot of the decisions that were made in the world came from Corinth. Um, and the funny thing is, to be a Corinth, that was actually a verb. If you were here at the beginning of our studies in, in Corinthians, people would use this word, you're a Corinthian, and they would say, you're a Corinthian, basically to insult somebody who was 
living very immorally. If you lived a life completely void of morals in, in, and you were just doing whatever you wanted at the expense of everyone else, they would say, well, you're a Corinthian. All right, so this wasn't a city that had the greatest um, moral upbringing, if you will, but it was very, very um, effective at, at deciding which way the culture around them went. And what happened was these people built a church in this city. Um, anyone will tell you it's very, very difficult to build a church in a place, in a very, in, in a, in a very important city like New York City um, or Los Angeles. Building a church in these places, or Tampa, right? Um, um, building a church in, in, in those places, it's, it's typically very, very hard to do. Um, and, and when it does, ha- because generally people are, are pretty much against bringing religion into their society when their society is, is, um, is the way that, that cities like New York City are. Um, and they had established and built a very successful church. It was probably the biggest church in the New Testament. It was probably, um, it, it, it was, it was, uh, very effective. He, he talks constantly about how a lot of you were like this and like this and like this and like this, very sinful lives before, but now you're not. You were just like that. Well, um, lasers. Um, all right, so, so Paul, in verse 1 through 3 here in chapter 13, he's warning them that their success means nothing, that a lot of their good deeds that they're doing and their spiritual gifts that they have, it really means nothing. All right, so he says that, and then in chapter 8, Paul calls them puffed up, and Paul says right here, that it doesn't, love doesn't boast. In chapter 10, he says that they're self-seeking. And right here, Paul says that uh, love doesn't insist on its own way. Um, chapter 7, he calls them rude. And, and Paul says here that love is not rude. Everything that he is saying here goes against the exact sins that they were struggling with and is at the root of all their problems. The root of, of every problem that they were having in their church was a lack of love. I believe Paul would argue that if you came to him and said, I struggle with this sin... I struggle with this or with that or with that. Paul, every time, would look at you and say, love does not do this. Love does not do this. And he would name something that love does, that if you were practicing love, it would cancel out that sin. It would get rid of it in your life and replace it with something better. So Paul, all through this chapter, argues that at the heart of your problems in your life, at the heart of every bit of your sin in your life, is a a lack of love or a misinterpretation of love, all right? Um, So that's how the chapter basically breaks down. Um, I would argue that every single one of the things that Paul mentions in this entire chapter is easily found as a problem in the Corinthian church, all right? Um, He's explaining to them that the root of everything they're struggling with, it's all caused by their lack of love. So um, we're going to begin looking at this, um, looking at, at the meaning of all these words, and there's basically three things I want you to consider as we look at every one of these words. Um, some of them we're going to go very detailed into um, because they have a lot of cultural meaning, um, and some of them are just surface and they're just rapid-fire words that are very important for us to understand. As you're reading these, there's three things I want you to do. First, I want you to consider how you see this quality in Jesus himself because the whole goal of Christianity, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, is to live like Christ, to become like him. So what Paul is describing here is something you will see in the life of Jesus. If you're going to define love, you look at how Jesus lived his life and you say, that's what love does. All right? Um, And the second thing I want you to do is is I I want you to look at how this either exists or it doesn't exist in your own life. And the third thing I want you to do is, is think about something you've really struggled with and I want you to, to contemplate how if you had 
applied love in this way or that way or that way, in one of the ways that he mentioned here, if it would have changed this whole struggle in your life, if it would have changed how you reacted to somebody when they did something to you, if it would have changed decisions that you made, and, and Paul would argue that it would have if you would just understand and practice the love of Christ. All right? So, let's do this. Okay, so, he starts off, love is patient. Uh, it's this Greek word, makrothameo, and, and it, it basically, it's not describing patience as in waiting for the train. Um, it's not patience as in just waiting for anything. It it's always has to do with people. Patience with people. People who are pricking you and messing with your emotions and they're not acting the way you want them to and you're waiting for them to come around. Um, Paul says that love is patience. The word always described with people and not circumstances that you're in. It's not the patience that is, that is sitting waiting for God to move and God to do something. It is patience that is waiting for somebody um, to change the way they are looking or treating you. All right, a man named John Chrysostom in the fourth century, a theologian, he said this, it is the word that is used of those who are wronged and who have it easily in their power to avenge themselves and yet will not do it. Maybe some of you here today have been wronged deeply by someone else and maybe you, it's, it, it would appear from everybody's standpoint that you are perfectly in the right um, to cut that relationship and, or, or to desire vengeance or to desire for something to change. And Paul says, if you apply love to the situation, then you're also going to apply patience. Love is the thing that can fix these relationships and we apply patience to all of this. There's people in your life maybe who with whom you're not at unity anymore. There's people in your life who you are justifiably angry with and separated from to the point where it affects other areas of your life as well. And Paul says that love is the thing that can fix it. It's not about your circumstances. Um, This is about loving someone despite the circumstances that they have put you in. You look at where you are and it's all their fault, but you love them anyways. And pretty soon what happens is none of these things around you hold you down anymore. You refuse to basically be a prisoner to, to what they have made of you. Your circumstances cannot determine your level of love for someone, but love sure can determine your ability to mend things. And things will never be mended if you're not loving. All right? Sounds like rain. All right. Um, This is the same word that Paul used in 2 Peter 3.9 to talk about Jesus. So this answers that, that little question, how did Jesus show this? The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient towards you not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance in the same way that Jesus sat and waited for you to recognize his love and his patience with you and he waited and waited and waited what if what if he had not what if he had felt your emotions and decided to do what you do and cut the relationship off just cut it off Thank God we have a God that is not like us. The very fact that you are here this morning is simply because Jesus had the patience to wait for you and to keep striving after you. All right? So the second thing, love is kind. So this word basically means it's the action of providing something beneficial to someone. Um, And this is is interesting. It's it's always an action. It refers to someone who provides something beneficial for someone else. Um... A man named Origen, ancient theologian, he said he, he defined, oh, I'm sorry, Bernard, he defined it like this, a spontaneous disposition to bless. I know people like this. These people are awesome, all right? They, 
they're thinking of you all the time. And they show up with random surprises and, and things that they know you need. They're paying attention to people's needs. And they show up with the answer to those people's needs. These are really amazing people. Some of you know these people in your life. And it's such a huge blessing. And they lift massive weights off of your shoulders by simply remembering other people that have needs and not thinking about themselves all of the time. This is a very, very important trait in the church. And there's not all that many people that have it. But Paul argues that if you were really exercising love, you would really probably have this trait. All right? Um, um, Origen, like I said, um, about 250 years after this passage was written, Origen described this word, kind, as uh, sweet to all. And I really like that definition. It's very short. It's sweet. (laughs) Um, So, are you the kind of person whose first thought is for yourself or for other people? A lot of times, this can cause a lot of friction in your life. Your first thought is always for yourself and then for other people. All right? You like that when you get on an airplane, they tell you, secure your mask first before other people's. And you're like, I was going to anyways. You appreciate that law. You think there should be more like that, all right? Um, <clears throat> and this is you. And, and there are all kinds of people throughout history who were very, very spiritually, morally upright, very moral people that were not kind. This is what the entirety of the Crusades was based upon. In an attempt to be very spiritually, moral, upright, and, and rid the earth of sin, they committed terribly, terribly unloving acts. Oftentimes, the lack of kindness is what causes the greatest atrocities in the world. It's a very difficult thing to abstain from sin, um, honestly, while also not falling into sin of another kind, like I already described. Um, Oftentimes, you can be very, 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 very moral, but your life can be filled with sin. And Paul says, and this usually stems from being unkind, all right? Pride is a cancer that causes you to be unkind, and it's a cancer that it, it won't take root, really, until you cleanse yourself of all these other sins. But once it starts to grow, it works very, very quickly, and it diminishes your relationship with both God and others. How many of us, and think about this, you're in the first century, and you're a member of the Pharisees. You're very morally upright. You've worked very hard to live a very, very godly life, and you did it because you have a conviction that this is the right thing to do. And this woman is paraded out, and you know the Jewish laws and customs that she was caught in the midst of committing adultery, and she's thrown into the middle, and she's to be stoned. And all of a sudden, this obscure Jewish rabbi walks up, says his name is Jesus of Nazareth, and he stands up, and he convinces you that that's not the loving thing to do. How many of us would have sided with the Pharisees over Jesus? I would say most of us would. And we would argue against Jesus who would look at us and say, well then let the, let the man who is innocent cast the first stone. This is how kindness, this is how unkindness works in our lives. It makes us so aware of our moral uprightness that we forget the only reason we are allowed to stand in the presence of God today is because God was patient with us and had grace and mercy on us. Kindness is vital in the Christian life. All right. Um, next up. Oh, hold on. Before I move on, 
This honestly, kindness thing, this is the general view that, that the world has of Christianity. I don't know if you realize this. People mention Christians and they say, even if they say, yeah, they live very moral lives, they don't, um, typically their marriages last longer. You, you ever heard that statistic where they say Christian marriages are just as liable to get divorced as non-Christian marriages? That's actually incredibly not true. Um, if you do any research into that, you're going to see that that's just not true. Um, Christian marriages generally in, up into, up into the, six, the high 60 percentile um, most are, are successful. Um, and so the world looks at Christians and they say, yeah, they live pretty morally upright lives and, and they make right decisions and they're just, they're just hateful. The reason the world talks about Christianity like that is because of our lack of kindness. Because we're not thinking about other people and, they're, and we don't have empathy for them and, and we don't desire um, for their lives to be good over ours. We think we have earned the good things that we have and we forget that we haven't even earned our salvation. So the next word, envy. To strive, to set one's heart upon. Love does not uh, do this. And now this is, um, it just doesn't mean, it doesn't mean just to strive to set one's heart upon anything. Um, this really comes in two forms. One is a normal struggle that people have, and one is not quite as innocent, all right? Um, so the first one is the person who simply, it's, it's the desire to possess what someone else has. Now, in this first definition here, there's also two things, one of them that I wouldn't, I wouldn't really say is, is wrong and one of them that is. Um, this doesn't mean the desire to, like, like you look at somebody and you say, um, I, I wish I had a family like you. I wish I had a loving husband. I wish I had obedient children. I wish I had, um, I, I wish I had a, um, a job that, that supported me. I wish I had this. I wish I had that. And, and this is, these are just normal, normal desires. This wouldn't fall under envy. Envy is something a little different. It's, um, it's the keeping up with the Joneses mentality. It's very, very prevalent in America. Um, it's the striving for the image of someone else so that you can have their praise and respect. It's, it's the thing that if I had this, people would finally respect me. If I had this, people would look at me differently. If I had this career, if I excelled in this area, if I could do this, perform this kind of art really, really well, I would finally have the image that I desire. And, and what this is is a rejection of the image that God has offered us. God has stood there and he says, I've offered you to be my children, to be, to be the heirs to everything that I have. I've declared you whole. I've declared you righteous. And you'd rather have some career that someone else has so that you could get the praise of men. It's a rejection of the identity of God. And that's why it is so dangerous. Now the second type of, of envy is much more sinister. It's begrudging another for having what you do not have. This is the one that says, um, I don't really care what they have as long as they don't have more than me. This is the one that, um, it's very dangerous. It's more upset, uh, it, it's, not, it's not that they're upset with how much someone, someone makes or has, just that they have more than you. You feel that you deserve what they have because you have worked harder, you've sacrificed more, you've done more good than them. Are you seeing the pattern? It's all about what you have done. It's all about you. You feel that you deserve it. The thing that upsets you is, is not that you didn't, you didn't get this particular thing. It's that someone else did get it. And this is a very, very, very dangerous, um, not to mention completely unchristian place to be if this is where your heart is. It's exactly what Paul is talking about in the first chapter. Um, 
listen, your good deeds and your level of morality do not determine whether or not God will bless you. I know oftentimes we feel that God will not bless us because of our spiritual performance throughout the day. If the blessings of God has ever been determined by your spiritual state and, and your ability to make the right choices, you would never felt a blessing in your life. God blesses us despite ourselves. All right? In fact, most likely the reason you haven't actually received what you desire to have is because God knows that if you were to receive it, it would destroy you. The thing we need to remember is the things that we do not have right now are unnecessary for our spiritual growth and for us to become what God wants us to be. And the things that we do have right now, whether they're good or bad, are necessary for us in our lives to become what God wants us to be. What you have right now, you have for a reason. Your struggles, your sufferings, your blessings, you have those because God gave them to you so that you could become what he wants you to be. And if we exercise love and patience and kindness, great things will happen. All right. Um, Love does not boast. It does not praise oneself excessively. True love will always be more impressed with how unworthy they are to be loved rather than how much they deserve to be loved. If you are upset that someone is not showing you the level of respect and love that you deserve, then you have not understood this. That's not how love acts. Love thinks about all that it has, all the blessings that are, that, are, that are filling the person's life and says, I am unworthy of this. As long as you have this, you will stay humble and you will stay close to God. You will show love, all right? Really, really great and important people never realize that they are really great or important, all right? And, and this, is, this, is, this is a big deal because a lot of times we're just, the reason we want to accomplish things is because we want to feel great. We want to feel important. We want to feel like people in some field uh, uh, respect us. If it's science or it's music or it's art or it's poetry, it's literature, it's whatever. We want other people to respect us and think of us as great for what we have done. Even in ministry, people think like this. The problem is, if you truly were great and doing amazing things, If you were truly great in the eyes of God and you were humble and close to him, you would never know that people looked up to you. You would never know that people admired the work that you did. And the second you did, you should be terrified of your pride poking its head out. All right? Um, Maybe you've heard of a musician back in the the old days, back in the 70s. His name was Keith Green. Um, Got a recording contract to be a rock and roll singer when he was 11 years old. Um, I actually saw a YouTube video of him performing as being 11 years old this week. Um, blew my mind. Um, he wrote amazing music as, as a kid. Um, came to Christ in his early, I believe it was 20s, maybe late teens, and gave up music, got into ministry, um, eventually started doing music again, and soared to the top of Christian music charge. He started, he started this movement called the Jesus People, and that's where all the Cornerstone festivals came from and all these big band festivals that have gone on uh, for so many years. Um, I have a quote from him. Whoa. All right. <laughs> Today, so many people ask me if I can tell them how they can start or enter into a music ministry. At concerts, I get countless, countless questions about this. 
And I also get lots of letters and even some long-distance phone calls from many people who feel that they are only called into the music ministry. And one day I began to ask myself why so, so few have ever asked me how to become a missionary or even a local street preacher or how to disciple a new believer. It seems everyone would prefer the bright lights of what they think a music ministry would be rather than the mud and obscurity of the mission field or the streets of the ghetto or even the true spiritual sweetness of just being a nobody whom the Lord uses mightily in a small, everyday way. My answer to their question is almost always the same. Are you willing to never play music again? Are you willing to be a nothing? Are you willing to go anywhere and do anything for Christ? Are you willing to stay right here, right where you are, and let the Lord do great things through you, though no one may notice at all? And they all seem to answer each one of these questions with a quick yes, but I really doubt if they know what their answer entails. I think this is a guy that got it. I think this is somebody who understood it. And from everything I've read of his, I would admire him as a great, godly man um, who did incredible things in music, but he wouldn't. And um, this is what's so fascinating about the human desire for fame. Because in the, in the world of godliness, in, in the world of being a follower of Christ in the kingdom of heaven, the whole thing is sort of set up so that you never receive the glory. Because you shouldn't. Because your salvation isn't even something that you earned on your own. And if you feel like you're really great and you've done really great things and people should listen to you, then you've got a problem with love. That actually goes perfect into the next thing that Paul says here. I'm just going to put the rest of the passage up. It does not insist on its own way. Love does not insist on its own way. If you feel that someone owes you more than you're receiving, more respect, more responsibility, more attention, uh, maybe you feel as if your advice should be taken above others, that you've earned a spot as the authority because of the work that you've done in some field, um, if that is you, then you are well outside of the realm of love. You want everybody to bow down to your opinion. You are well outside of the realm of love because your way will take everyone with you exactly where you want them to go and think about what I've just said. That's a really heavy claim, that you know the way, then you're going to take everybody with you. What you really need to do is clothe yourself in humility and seek the counsel of others and not their approval. There's a difference between seeking the approval of others and the counsel of others, and it's a huge directional change. We are to seek the counsel of others and humbly help them make decisions in following the path of God. All right? And moving right along to the next one, it is not irritable or resentful. How is it that if you're in a habit of loving somebody that you could ever resent somebody? You can't. One of the biggest things about love is that it, it, keeps, people, it, it keeps people absolutely no record of wrong. It, it doesn't let you keep a record of wrong. And why? Why is that? How is that possible that, that you could have memories of all these things that people have done that were just terrible and have no record of wrong? Well, really, you, of all people, personally, should know yourself the most and know yourself above all other people. And that means you know yourself to the fullest extent of knowledge and just how bad you are. You know how lustful your eyes are. 
You know how much jealousy is behind the words that you speak. You know how much gossip you take part in. You know the darkest motives behind every deed you have ever done. You know all of the things that you would definitely do if you knew you would get away with it and nobody would ever find out. Only you know all of those things. And so the, the audacity that any of us would have to keep a record of the things that someone else has done when we know the deepest parts of our hearts, it's unloving. It's completely unloving. The funny thing is, everything you know about yourself and the decisions that you've made and the decisions that you would make if given the opportunity, you need to remember that there is a God who allows you to claim his name. There was a perfect being, Jesus Christ, who walked on this earth, who lets you call yourself a Christian. And for some reason, sometimes I feel like every time I say the word Christian in reference to myself, that I should duck. Because what I know about myself and what I claim about myself, I don't think there's anyone here that would claim these two things line up. The love of God is so incredibly great for you and for me that if you really understood it, it would make you completely blind to the sins of others and the record of others, all right? Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Isn't it fascinating that one of the features of of human nature is is our desire to see others fail? This this has always been something that's fascinated me um, because there's, there's a huge market for... Um, for, for gazing upon the failings of other human beings, all right? Um, back in Roman days, it was there too. It was, it was, it was called the Colosseum, um, where prisoners would be sent in to fight each other. And when somebody would make a mistake and they would lose the fight and be killed, the people would cheer for them to make a mistake. When I was a kid, they had uh, America's Funniest Home Videos. <laughs> really kind of the same thing. People getting really, really hurt all the time and everyone laughing at them. There's a huge market. Today, there's failblog, right, .org. Okay. Um, how many of you saw that picture, that, that, that woman who was trying to redo a fresco of Jesus, and it ended up looking like a monkey? No? It's like a thousand years old? Look it up. All right. Hilarious. Hilarious. Um, look, there is, there is something in us that desires to hear about the failings of other people. We desire to see them fail, and, and when they do, we kind of like frown. We're like, oh, that's so terrible, so terrible, but really it made our day that we just heard that, and really we're going to go throughout the rest of our day and be like, I cannot believe I would never do that. You would. You totally would have, all right? Um, this is not how we were supposed to be. Oftentimes our churches are filled with these proclamations of other people's sins. If we don't institute a culture of confession, which is what we're constantly trying to do here, a culture of confession in our churches, then we will become a church full of pride and void of love. Confession is what lets us all know that we are all on the same level, all on the same page. We all have the same exact amount of sins in our lives, and it reminds us that we are all the same in the eyes of God, sinners who have received grace, and that's it. All right? Love rejoices in the truth. It's the next thing Paul says. Obviously, Paul has the same thing in mind, all right? Um, Because if we're really being truthful, we're being honest, then it's really going to make all of us um, a little more humble, a little more admirable to, like, at the things of God. It's, it, if we're all just being honest about who we are, Paul knows that when we can all admit 
that we are people who need grace, only then will we be able to actually give grace to others. And the truth is that it's so much harder to hear. The truth is much harder to hear. It's much harder to say, and it does not feed our egos, and it tears down our pride, and all of these things are the reason that it is so, so, so important in our lives. The truth about who you are. Most of our boasting anyway is just lies. Just tell the truth. So the next three things, they're they're really these rapid-fire succession things. They go with the culture of confession idea. Love bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, and endures all things. The one thing, the one, I'm sorry, the one who loves can hear anything at all and respond to it in a kind way. It bears all things. It, It can hear any news and say, well, that doesn't change how I look at you. I still love you from the depths of my soul. All right? Um, the one who loves, it believes, that person believes in people. They don't think the worst of them. They aren't skeptical of them. They, they don't simply treat people in a way that, they simply treat people in a way that Jesus treats us. He trusts us with his mission, and when we fail, he picks us up and dusts us off and says, now try this again. All right, we're patient with people. All right? The one who loves also has hope. They're never, dis- they're never destroyed, and, and they never think that, that God is no longer in control. They trust their current situation is necessary for their growth. Also, the one who loves endures all things. If there's anything in the Christian message that, that's the most important thing to take, it's the, it's, it's the idea of the resurrection, that there is hope. Even when someone is dead and in the grave for three days, resurrection is coming. And this is the message of Christianity that is so incredibly powerful. This means that nobody is too far gone. All right? It endures all things. You forgive and you patch it up and you move on. You bring resurrection story to it. All right? I think this is really, this entire message of, of, of love taking on these struggles in our lives head on, I think it's, it's a huge message that the church today is missing. Our churches are, are filled with so many people who are proud of, of their accomplishments and proud of the fact that they've conquered all these sins and they run around looking for other people's sins so they can confront them and get them to change or kick them right out of the church. I've seen this over and over and over again where really a, a, a pastor falls into sin and the people treat him terribly they, they, or, or some leader in the church. I've seen it constantly throughout my life uh, being a family that's, that's in ministry. Um, People in leadership in the church, they, they fall into sin and they come forward and they admit that what they've done, cause maybe because they got caught or whatever reason, or maybe they were sorry, they were remorseful, and the people in the church rage against them. How could you possibly do this? We will not allow that in our church, and they kick them out. And the funny thing is they were never really expecting grace because they taught the people to act like this. They never expected anyone to strive for their restoration, to strive for forgiveness, to try to patch things up, to try to make things right and give them a place back in the community again. They want them out but he's the one that taught them to be like that. So he's getting exactly what he sowed. In our churches, we have to have grace. We have to have humility. We, we have to cast off our pride. We have to constantly exercise love. We can't let ourselves be separated by our, um, almost sounded like the Independence Day speech, we can't be separated by our petty differences any longer. All right? Some of you know what I'm talking about. Um, we really can't. We have to practice love, and we have to understand that all of these sins that are flowing in your life, they're just prevalent. You can't get rid of them. Have you tried love? Have you tried exercising love and humility? Have you tried it? Paul would argue that it would work. Love is the only thing that can both make our lives free from sin and bring us back when we fall into sin. 
And this is something that a sinless moral life can't do. It can't do it. Love is the only thing that can do it. Um, Next week we're going to get into the next... um, that we're going to finish out this passage and get into the beginning of, uh, of chapter 14. But maybe some of this has struck a chord with you. Maybe there's some area in your life where you've you heard me say, I think that's what I haven't been practicing. Maybe I've been boastful or envious or whatever, and it's really come between my relationships with other people. And maybe this morning God's giving you the opportunity to patch this up. So we're going to take communion. This is something we do every single week. This is a very important time where we ponder the things that, that God has taught us. And... Um, we come on up, we take a piece of bread, and we dip it in the glass, and we eat it. The bread symbolizes the body of Christ broken for all of us. The wine is the blood of Christ spilled for all of us. And uh, it is us remembering. We come on up, and we say, Lord, I remember what you did for me, the amount of love and patience that you showed to me so that you could make me into what you want me to be. And let's ask God to reveal these things in our lives, these things that have been separating our relationships for so long. And let's get rid of them. Let's replace them with love. Don't just strive to stop doing them. Strive to replace them with love. Be proactive, all right? So uh, let's bow our heads in prayer and, uh, and take some time. Father, we love you. You're a good God. You're a holy God. You are so patient with us. You are so kind to us. Always thinking of, of us. Even when we are being profane with your name, God, you aren't thinking about yourself. You're thinking about us and you bless us, and you bless us, and you bless us. And God, we are unworthy of everything that you have done. Teach us not just to receive these things and to pile them up in our lives. Teach us to receive them and then learn to give them to other people. Teach us to receive your mission that you are on and and realize that we are your hands and we are your feet, we are your mouth, and if there's things that you want to get done, you have to use us to do them, and that can't happen unless our hearts are filled with love and anchored in love. Teach us to be this way, God. We love you. Teach us to understand and grasp what that even means when we say that we love you, God. Thank you for everything that you have done in our midst. In your name, amen.